you're listening to the Vanderbilt Business Review Podcast. We are a student-run business journal under Vanderbilt Student Communications. Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Vanderbilt Business Review Podcast. I'm your host, Rahul Regula. I'm a rising senior now and a biomedical engineering student at Vanderbilt University. I'm joined here by our fellow members of the Vanderbilt Business Review Club. And uh, we'll go around and start introducing ourselves. I'll start with uh, Dave. Hi, my name is Dave, and I'm a rising senior here at Mandy studying computer science and economics. Hello, everyone. My name is Gabriel Hinojosa. I'm a rising senior studying economics, computer science, and Chinese. Hi, I am Trevor Jones. I am a rising sophomore at Vanderbilt, majoring in economics and computer science. I'm Maxwell Chen. I'm a rising senior and I'm majoring in economics and history. Perfect. So now we have two topics lined up for today's discussion or podcast. Uh, first one going to be about inflation rate and the future of it. And the second topic is going to be about the NBA reopening early and future TV deals. So let's get right into the first topic. So last month, um, we got our first uh, news about the inflation rates and we have seen that it has actually increased Um for example, we have the, the CPI, which has uh, increased to 5%, which is the highest that it has ever been since uh, 2008, since the Great Recession. Um, the core rate has also gone up to around 3.8%. However, the Federal Reserve seems to be a little bit uh, relaxed on this. They're saying that um, they're, they're hoping that inflation rates is going to stay around 2 to 2.1%. So they're not trying to do anything right now like because they think it's transitory. So Maxwell, what do you think about this news? Yeah, so uh, the big debate is of course, whether this period of inflation is transitory or whether it's here to stay. So the Federal Reserve and the chairman Jerome Powell say that it is in fact transitory in their opinion um, because they believe that this period of inflation has been caused by the extraordinary circumstances surrounding the pandemic reopening, which is of course something uh, none of us have ever lived through, um, as well as the fact that uh, rates of inflation and especially prices were uh, low during the pandemic. So uh, it's only natural that they're increasing by a large amount right now. And so at some point, low values will wash out. So we won't see as big you know, percent increases as well as other factors kind of resolving themselves as Powell says, um, just because uh, we will no longer be coming out of a pandemic, we'll get be getting back to something like uh, normal times. And so uh, some of the evidence that Powell cites is that um, inflation is kind of specific to certain areas, um, such as the pent up demand that consumers have had in things like uh, plane tickets, hotels, lumber for building houses, um, and especially used up or used cars and trucks, um, consumers had a lot of pent up demand that they didn't really, you know, spend on these things during the pandemic. And now they want to spend a lot more on these things. So it's kind of causing a little bit of inflation, as well as the, um, the sort of labor shortages that we've heard a little bit about, um, bringing up wages, as well as prices a little, little bit. And so these are things that are kind of caused by the fact that we're coming out of a historical event that is really unprecedented um, given our you know, modern economy. And so the Fed believes that once these 
uh, factors kind of uh, resolve, then they believe that the uh, inflation rate will go back down towards some of their normal rates. Uh, Powell's actually Congress uh, recently, and he, he was asked whether uh, we could see a repeat of uh, inflation rates above 10%, which happened in the 1970s. And he said this is very unlikely. Um, he says that uh, both full employment and uh, stable prices are something that the Fed, of course, those are their two mandates. And Powell believes that they will be able to maintain them without taking too drastic action. Um, but at the same time, the Fed, which has been uh, buying upwards of $120 billion in bonds per month, is set to start uh, tapering that down in the future. And we're not talking about like immediately. Um, the latest open market committee meeting, uh, Powell described that as the talking about talking about raising rates meeting. So they're not going to do it quite yet. Um, but it's now scheduled for around 2023 with two rate hikes, which is uh, earlier than previously believed. Um, but of course, rate hikes need about 10 months to a year of tapering of bond purchases before they really take effect. So um, an end to the Fed's loose money policies could be closer than we think, given the uh, high inflation that we've seen. Yeah, I largely agree with what Maxwell said. I think that's also important to talk about uh, perception, how people think about inflation. Obviously, in the short term, it's not good. And I don't think that for the next year or two, or maybe the next few years, it will be great. But if you look at inflation in the 1980s, it was over 14%. And that whole period from the 1970s to the 1980s, we saw massive spikes in inflation for a great deal of time. If you look at the 1950s, we saw inflation at over 9%. If you look at inflation around the Great Recession period, it was slightly under 6%. And we are approaching Great Recession numbers, and we probably will be there at some point. But I think that the historical context sets the precedent for how we should react. And I guess that I would have a side with the idea that it is transitory, because we have a long history to look at. Even though that period from the 1970s and 1980s lasted a while, we did see eventually that it went down and it went down to a great number. So I think that I was side with that. And, you know, I think that at the same time, it's important to think about that we are in a new era. We are dealing with a new situation with this wireless. So I could be wrong, but history shows us that we will eventually recover. And kind of go off of Maxwell's point, I am super curious to hear what people think about the shortages we have seen worldwide and how that has affected prices. I mean, I've heard everything from chicken shortages to diaper shortages to car parts to chips and you know I think that it's also had a domino effect on things such as you know if chips are at a shortage then we're going to see a car shortage as well and this will obviously jack up prices just based on simple economics and if you do expect us to recover on that end which I fully expect as things begin to ramp up production manufacturing things begin to ramp up I think that we don't necessarily have anything to worry about in the long term and I would define long-term as in the next 10 years, next five to 10 years. So I think that, you know, we do have something to worry about in the short term, but not in the long term. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with Dave, you know, on this point that the inflation hike that we've seen in the past year is definitely something in the short term. I mean, the fact that there's a shortage of many things just due to borders closing um, is a big factor. I mean, here in the U.S., we still do not have free movement between ourselves and 
our neighbors up north in Canada. And there's many other border closures also affecting our supply of different goods and materials and whatnot to come in through our country that, you know, and basically things that help produce the things that, you know, we produce, whether it be food or manufacturing goods or anything of that sort, of course the prices are going to be higher. Now here's another thing that I think we shouldn't, we should not gloss over when we're talking about the recent hike in inflation. The fact that more Americans now than ever have disposable income to this certain degree. I mean, let's think about it this way. Ever since April of last year, many, many Americans who went unemployed were receiving more unemployment benefits than in the history of our country. And in fact, they're still receiving it up until September, which means many people actually do have more disposable income, hence um, they can spend more. And we can also consider this, that a lot of people didn't spend for much of the past year due to the pandemic. And now that our country is reopening up and, and you can go out to eat at a restaurant safely or movie theater safely, what have you, people are going to spend more money. People are going to travel more. I mean, I literally just, this morning I saw that our travel levels are back to pre-pandemic as of today, actually. Delta Airlines, Southwest Airlines, and I think American reported the same travel volume today and on this date today as compared to 2019, which, you know, is a very big sign that people are moving, spending money, traveling, what have you. So, of course, it's going to happen after such a depression and a suppression of our ability to spend our money. Of course, we're going to have an inflation uh, in, a, in temporary like this. And I definitely do believe in what Maxwell mentioned, what Jerome Powell said, that this is going to be a transitory period. And if you look at any different indicators, even looking, if you look at any indicators, such as LIBOR rates, different interest rates, we don't indicate any long-term hike in our inflation. You know, we're not, we're definitely not going to be the next Venezuela by any means. Um, and we're, we probably won't even see more than 5% inflation at any point within the next 10 years. And hopefully we don't, you know. But even if we even if we do, I think CAP will have it a 5.5% at most. But I would honestly doubt it. I think inflation by the end of this year is going to stabilize to a good 3%. At least that's what the Fed is expecting. And that's what many different um, many different journalists and financial and, and analysts are expecting. So it's definitely not something to worry about in the long run. However, there may, there may be some short run implications to this, um, to this hyperinflation. For example, I mean, for one, um, while there are people that um, do have a lot of disposable income just because they work with a state during the pandemic or people who are receiving massive unemployment benefits, let's not overlook the underdogs in this. And, and these are the people that have been working consistently throughout the pandemic. Because unfortunately, the one big, the big implication about this hike in inflation is that wages have not modeled that same, those same inflation hikes that we've seen in the past 10 years, and we still haven't seen it now. Um, and I guess that's just to show how this pandemic has widened the income gap between the top 1% and the bottom half and the bottom 50% of this country. So, you know, that's the one drawback about this recent hike in inflation because that's only exacerbating so a damage that the heart of the pandemic has done, so to speak. Um, 
the divide between who could have gone to work versus who could have worked from home uh, versus who had to leave because their job couldn't go remote, etc. So those are possible long-term implications that we shouldn't overlook. But in terms of the economy overall, whether it be of job prospects, especially white-collar job prospects, right? Is even 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 job prospects in in the service industry, such as restaurants or um, busing jobs, top cashier clerks, you name it. Uh, I do not think that these recent inflation hikes are going to uh, have an, a lasting effect on that. If anything, what's going to happen is that once in September, when all the COVID stimulus, um, when the, all the COVID stimulus bills and the unemployment and the massively hiked unemployment benefits um, cease, I think what's going to happen is that we're really just going to actually be back to the normal levels of 2019. Obviously, um, a little bit more workers in 2019 just because you know more people have entered the workforce and there's just so many job openings right now but i but these th but these job openings are not going to have any negative correlation or any negative effect on this inflation we're seeing it's going to stabilize i i personally have a lot of faith in, in the fed in this issue i mean even looking at the libor rate which is the under a, a london interbanking um, interest rate it actually dropped, <laughs> believe it or not, actually dropped oh, within the, the past month, only two basis points, but two basis points is two basis points, right? I mean, those, in, those interest rates are so sensitive to any, any sort of thing that's happening in the overall economy. And to, you know, to, and considering that interest rate, that, that the LIBOR rate dropped while the interest rate rose, that's an interesting phenomenon, right? Uh, it, it takes further examination, but I really don't have an answer to why, but just looking at that as an indicator alone, you can probably get that, that yeah, this period of inflation is very transitory. Yeah, well, an interesting point I think Gabe made, made is about how the, the low, this kind of separated the income gap between lower and higher wage earners especially with an industry, we talked about uh, throughout each person's segment about how different industries were, have had prices driven up, you know, lumber, uh, chips, like microchips are one that's about to be an imminent uh, raise that people are expecting, and used cars as well, as well as one that didn't get mentioned that I want to bring up is the housing market. So between all those different types of markets, you know, it's, it is really, like I believe Gabe said, like the, the, the biggest downside of this inflation is that the lower class are the, the losers of it, I guess you could say, and that is, is extremely unfortunate. But I, I do agree with their points that I do trust the Fed, and this, according to what we've seen, I don't really think this, this is going to be you know, too long term of a of an issue, especially because you've, we've seen a lot of volatility in the stock market in both you know a negative and a positive context. Um, once those interest rate hikes were announced in in twenty twenty three, that the the Fed was going to to talk about raising those, it did cause a little bit of uh, like it upset the stock market a little bit, I guess. But then. Later, you know, a couple of days later, after reassessing, it, it began to stabilize. So, not that you know, the stock market is the best indicator of it, but you can definitely see through that how the stock market does not believe the country is doomed, and neither should we, given what we've heard from the Fed and what we've seen with this inflation rate. Okay, 
I, I actually, uh, my life like Trevor talked about the housing. You know, there's, um, there's one thing, the housing market. In certain select cities, especially in, in the Sun Coast, you know, the Sun Belt, I mean, the South, you know, Florida, Texas, um, you know, Arizona, Nevada. It, it, has, it, is, it is mind blowing the value that people are willing to pay for these homes. Um, and that's the only, that's the only one worry that I think that Jerome Powell and the Fed might have overlooked, quite honestly. Um, the fact that a year, over a year into this pandemic, people are still putting down these ridiculous payments for these houses. I mean, you're getting houses that were valued at 750 about a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, you know, 15 months ago, now going for one and a half million in some parts of the country. And of course, that puts at a disadvantage um, the, the lower, you know, the lower class, so lower income, lower income earners of this country. Um, so there's going to be one long lasting implication. I honestly do believe is that um, is that there's going to be a, there's going to be much many more renters in the future. At least in the, within the next five to ten years, um, we're going to see much lower rates of home ownership, uh, and this in, this inflation hike and obviously the low interest rates have a lot to do with the reason that people are buying houses to begin with, and uh, the whole array of other factors like the California wildfires and uh, people not wanting to be in the cities during the, to weather out the pandemic. Um, all these factors culminate in, into this into this uh, into this divide that I think is going to permeate American society, at least in the near future. I don't know, you know, forever is a bit much to say because so many so many things can happen between now and then. Um, but yeah, that's the that is the one thing. There's going to be a much larger proportion of renters. Now, in, in all honesty. It's hard to tell whether that is a necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, but it's a reality that we should be expecting. And it's a reality that when people our age go out into the workforce and go get a job, whether it be in New York City, Washington, DC, LA, Miami, Atlanta, wherever, we're going to have to pay higher rents than our peers who were um, in college three years ago or who were graduating three years ago. And that's just something we're gonna keep in mind. And I think that high rent, and I think that these spikes in rent and these spikes in home values are gonna be something that'll be here to last. You know, I don't know, I've, maybe there might be a de there might be a little bit of a decrease in value a little bit after the economy stabilizes, but home, home values are never ever going to go back down to pre-COVID levels. And I think that's a big thing that we should keep in mind for the, our future and for the future of this country. Uh, and I would just add to that, that um, economic crises like the one we've just lived through uh, have long tails in some way in that, you know, the, the growth of the economy has a trend. And when there's a dip, even if your economy starts growing at the same rate that it was before, it's going to be below where you would have been had there not been that crisis. So to get back to the previous trend is a whole different kind of recovery compared to just, you know, getting unemployment back down, getting people back to work and things like that. So 
a lot of the effects of the economy or of the crisis are going to be lingering in the economy, as Gabe said, and it's going to take a lot longer for us to get back to where we would have been without the pandemic. And of course, we may never get there, uh, just given how much uh, we were knocked off the pre-pandemic trend. And one of the one of the sort of tales of the 2008 crisis was that wages sort of never really recovered at the same rate that almost every other other indicator recovered. And so, you know, with a labor shortage right now, we might have sort of a reset of that with wages going back up, although that's not certain at all. Um, but, you know, as Gabe said, we just really have to watch out for a lot of different indicators and just see what the long-term effects of the crisis are, because not everything is going to go back to how it was before uh, as easily as something like unemployment rates or inflation or anything like that. And now we'll be moving to our second topic, which is about the National Basketball Association. So the NBA uh, kickstarted off the season pretty early, or I guess you could say fairly late, depending on how you look at it, if you're an average NBA fan. The new season started in December, but if we all remember from last year, the season, the playoffs started last season around the summertime and it ended in October. So that gave the remaining two teams around a month and a half to recover from their previous season. And the main biggest reason for this fast restart was because of money, because of the money that they lost during the pandemic and the cost that they try to recoup from this fast restart. And so I just wanted to ask all you all, what do you think about this um, season? How do you think it went? Was it successful? Was it okay? Because based on the ratings, at least, it seems like the NBA has seen an increase in their TV ratings, which is actually the highest in the past four years that they've ever seen, including these playoffs with the addition of play-in tournament. So Trevor, what do you make of the early start? Yeah, I think the ratings are definitely a huge signifier of what's happened. I personally living in Atlanta, it might just be because of their recent success in the playoffs as they play the Bucks as we're recording, but this I've never seen a community or a city more energized by basketball than I have right now. And it's the same way with other sports too. People are are really excited to go back, you know, go to games to watch and keep up with sports since they sort of had that deprivation of that for so long with COVID. And it's having a great positive effect on it. I know it, I, I had a friend try and go into a, a Jersey store the other day in a mall around Atlanta. And they, he, as soon as he walked in, they said, oh, we don't have any Hawks jerseys, we're closed, and turned them away. And he wasn't even looking for a Hawks jersey. So, you know, the, not only is the, are the, you know, the ratings going crazy, and then the ticket sales are, the merchandise is, I think there, it's, it's been a wild success in getting fan engagement, at least in my experience, um, especially with, and I think that is because of the, the lack of, of sports and of basketball and of everything else that we've seen in the last year and a half from due to COVID. So just to follow that up real quick, Trevor. Um, so for this past season, at least, the NBA did have to cut down the number of games that they would usually play. The standard was 82 games, but this season they did 72 games. Do you see the NBA trying to follow this same format for their future seasons, or do you think this is just a one-off? I think it's something to consider, especially – considering the players as well. The, uh, the the amount of injuries that have occurred this year has seemed unnaturally high, maybe because of that short rest window and the, the need for money, like you were saying in the intro. But it, it definitely is something to, to look at and to think about perhaps wanting you know, quantity over quality 
in or quality over quantity in terms of games and not pushing players to the absolute limit. I think it's an interesting case study to look at, but I don't think that necessarily it has to be the way it is. I just think it's something uh, perhaps for the NBA to to think about in an example when they look at you know potentially restructuring the rules for future years. I am uh, I'm going to give a slightly different take than Trevor on this. Um, while the numbers show that this season what well, is a success, and it is a success, don't get me wrong, it is not as much as a, of a success I would have liked, or at least I would have expected. And here's why: last season had the lowest ratings probably of any season in recent memory because many people, first of all, didn't consider the bubble, you know, the Orlando bubble where the players had to quarantine and self-isolate and just play in one arena and two arenas in Disney World. Um, many people didn't consider that a legitimate season just because of the circumstances and what have you. So that's understandable why the ratings were low. So where am I going at this? Is that... If the NBA didn't recover from that, then they'd be in deep water. But fine, let's take a look at the other numbers. Even in the past four years, the NBA has its highest rating since then in the playoffs. But let's analyze who was in the playoffs in these past four years. Well, let's do 2018. Finals are LeBron James, versus the Golden State Warriors for the fourth year in a row. Okay, everyone was tired of them at that point. And that series was a total fiasco, a sweep. We all know about the famous JR moment. The second year, oh, the Warriors are in the finals for the fifth time in a row, but there's a new face in Kawhi. Quite frankly, I think that the fans were just tired of seeing the Warriors in the finals, hence why the ratings were so low. And then last year, of course, was when many adamant fans like to consider the Mickey Mouse championships, <laughs> um, which I think is a, an interesting way to put it. But, you know, there was a bubble in all the circumstances I mentioned before. And then this year, the, for the first time in since 2015, really, since 2011, we had no idea who was going to be in the NBA Finals. No idea. It, but yet, this, the NBA does not has not achieved those same ratings as they were able, even able to achieve in 2015, 2016, in 2010, 2012, what have you. I think that is a problem in itself. The NBA did not. The NBA underachieved what many people would have expected they would achieve, given what has happened this season. And why is that? Well, injuries really. Um, when nine. Out of 24 All-Stars was injured at some point in the playoffs. You have a big problem. And I understand that the NBA, you know, they opened the season up early, you know, well, early-ish in December, early, like Rahul says, however you want to describe it early. They they they, they, they resumed it and they started it early, you know, to get the money and the TV deals would be much better. I would say, quite honestly, had the NBA waited out. We could have avoided these injuries. And there have been, may possibly even been more of a fan base drawn to the attraction of the NBA. Because as I say, and as anyone in this call can say, this has been the most entertaining NBA season in recent memory. Within the past seven, eight years, at least. But yet the numbers don't reflect that. So 
I don't not consider this a failure, but there's a lot of questions to why the numbers don't reflect that. And, and honestly, the injuries do have a big effect. And another thing that may have a big effect is just a lot of the tampering with the with the way that the NBA has formatted the season. I understand to make it 72 games to make it shorter, but the whole play-in tournament, even though it was a big draw, a big draw, received it still received a lot of criticism just because of the implication it may have had, such as depriving the fans of seeing their beloved star Stephen Curry. I can assure you, Paul, I can assure everyone watching this podcast that had Stephen Curry beating John Morant and the Memphis Grizzlies in that playing game, that first round matchup against the Utah Jazz would have drawn many people, many, many more people than did Memphis versus Utah, small market teams. And there's, and that's just one example. But there's other facts. There's just a bunch of other things as to why the ratings aren't, at least what many people would have expected to be higher than what they were. And I, and I do find it interesting that the NBA is trying to tamper with the season schedule. But quite frankly, the NBA doing that is detracting from what drew its fan base in the first place. The 82 games, tough and grueling, you know, October through April, regular season, tough basketball. And these are, these are things that the NBA should address, really. How should they make the game cater to those same fans who were watching it religiously eight years ago when their ratings were soaring up into the skies. Um, and quite frankly, yeah, that is something that the NBA has to look into. And, you know, the schedule for this season was a good, was a relatively decent fix for all the implications that COVID had on last year's season and the late start. But the injuries just completely detracted from it. And, and, and quite frankly, the NBA would probably have more of a playoffs if LeBron went further. Anthony Davis and the Lakers, they went further in. You know, those large market teams with those marquee players that we want to see. Because while these playoffs are very entertaining and unexpected, there's still a lot of fans that want to see their, their idol in those marquee matchups. And that's something that injuries and early starts have deprived us of and just a lot of things to look into financially for the nba and i know that there's even the question of streaming services and and whether to go for those rather than tv deals and all that but i think first and foremost if the nba wants to really maximize its profits which they have clearly not done this season they have to look within themselves and see okay what are things that we have to do to ensure our product is of the top quality, which this season, you know, the product is a very good quality, but it's certainly not as good as it could have been considering how exciting and <laughs> all the sudden turns and surprises we've had this year. I think that Gabe and Trevor brought up a lot of great points and I'll touch up on, on some of the things that Gabe said as well, because I think that you brought up some really interesting points. Um, but I think that firstly, just as a fan, it, it was great for me. And I think that the general consensus is that fans were happy as well. I mean, just from personal experience, I mean, I'm a fan of basketball and football and not necessarily baseball. 
So the transition from NBA to NFL will be much shorter, which is great for me. And I think that a lot of fans are kind of in the same boat. If you start in December and you kind of end in the July timeframe, that gives enough time to watch preseason NFL games in August. So that's great. So to kind of put some numbers out there, I, I read an article that said that TV ratings for the NBA playoffs are up 39% this year through the conference semifinals. And I guess you could argue that having new teams this deep in the playoffs could be the reason why. I mean, it's nice to see fresh faces, but kind of going on what Gabe said, I think that you could also argue that players like LeBron and Stephen Curry drive a lot of revenue and not having them could reduce viewership. I mean, you look at these names, you look at LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, James Harden. These are guys that have been eliminated from the playoffs and these guys are brands within the NBA brand itself. They drive revenue. And I think that, you know, that's an important point to consider as well as, as Gabe had mentioned. And I think that the opposing side of it is we have to also consider what the players are going through themselves. I think that it hasn't been great for players. I mean, it might be bringing in money potentially, but I think that we are materializing athletes as a source of entertainment and when they do express their dissatisfaction, I think that we point to their large contracts, which is just completely unfair to them. I think that, you know, at the end of the day, they are humans and they are playing on such a short break and that's not good for their mental and physical health. And I think that, you know, this is not a way of sustaining revenue. I think that, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing the NBA start their seasons later so that they can end later. So starting in December, ending in, um, July, but we need to ensure that they have rest because this is definitely not sustainable. And I think that although I want this to happen, I, I think that it'll go back to their normal pre-pandemic schedule. And I know that Rahul brought up the point about if we should continue with 72 games. I think that is an interesting point because if you do have 72 games, we do reduce the potential for injuries, assuming that players do have their breaks. And I think that it justifies having those playing games because I know that a lot of people were complaining about those playing games being additional games that could lead to injuries and stuff like that. But I think that, you know, we saw this season, it was so exciting to watch those playing games. It was so exciting to see teams go at it, try to compete for that nine and 10 seed, the seven and eight seeds, and then compete for one single game. It reminded me a lot of college basketball. So I do like that approach, potentially doing 72 games or somewhere in the seventies and then having those playing games. In terms of this idea of streaming, though, I think that's important to talk about illegal streams. I don't think that moving over to these streaming services might be super beneficial because if you think about it, I think that we think about a lot of these older generations, they're more likely to watch it on television. They're more likely to watch it on cable. But if you think about the younger generation, you think about teens, you think about young adults in their uh, young 20s, you might see people looking at illegal streams because I mean, you know, a lot of us aren't earning money or we aren't earning a whole lot of money. I know that's definitely popular in college just to look at illegal streams and that takes a lot of revenue away from the NBA. And I guess they have to crack on that as well. But I think that's an important point to consider. Yeah, I would agree with that. that um, illegal streams are definitely probably taking away from not only their revenue, but also like their TV ratings and stuff, which uh, has an indirect knock-on effect on their revenue since they may not be able to bring in as good a TV deal as they otherwise would have. Um, but I still think uh, transitioning towards, you know, their own streaming service like NBA TV 
or agreements with other streaming services like Amazon Prime um, is probably something that they're going to have to look at in the future, just given that more and more people are cutting the cord and uh, not having traditional TV packages. You know, a lot more people are maybe watching ESPN through a a subscription service rather than cable. So uh, TV deals now are probably still lucrative, but um, the NBA will probably have to transition at some point uh, as streaming becomes more and more the default rather than the new kid on the block. Um, And then the other thing I would say is that I, I definitely agree about Um, the number of games impacting sort of the quality of the product where um, when you have LeBron James tweeting um, that he's sorry to the fans that um, all their favorite players are missing the, you know, later um, you really have an issue of quality. It seems like we're having some technical difficulties with Maxwell's audio, but um, just to end things off here, um, I know Dave and Maxwell here brought up the fact about the TV deal and streaming. So I want to go a little bit more into that to end off this podcast. So the NBA is actually looking towards uh, writing up a new TV deal with the two networks that they work with, um, TNT and ESPN. And currently they're looking at a deal that they want around nine years for $75 billion. Now to put things into perspective, we can look at the NFL, which is the most popular sport in the, in the in the country and also the most popular sport they just recently got a tv deal with their tv corporations for around 11 years costing almost 100 billion dollars so and the nba is a growing sport especially with the younger generation so there's a lot of money to be made over there and the issue i have or i want to ask you guys is do you think they should invest more money now in into the traditional tv um, or basically basic cable channels like espn and tnt because many people like us, we prefer to watch stuff on our mobile devices, illegal streams in some cases, or we like to watch on streaming services. So do you think the NBA will get its money in the end from these corporations, but for companies like ESPN and um, TNT, doesn't really make any sense for them to invest so much money when they have very low viewership or they're losing viewership to these streaming corporations. And to bring up one more thing too, we already see this being implemented with the NFL with Amazon Prime. And now actually for the 2022 and 2023 seasons, um, Thursday Night Football is going to be the exclusive um, streaming partner with Amazon Prime. So you can only watch those games on Amazon Prime. So do you think the NBA might go into that field or do you think they should go into that field where we're only going to be able to watch games on sites like Amazon Prime or even HBO Max and such? I think that's a great point. And honestly, for me, I think that they will go into this just because that is the trend that we are seeing. And I can't see it bringing in revenue eventually, but I also think that the streaming service is super saturated. I mean, just looking at the whole landscape of things, there's just so many different different people asking for individuals' money. And at some point we had to pick and choose but I do think that, you know, hardcore sports fans are going to pay for this. And I know a lot of people already are paying for this. And especially if you look at the older generation, they might definitely transition over to this. And when I say older generation, I don't mean that in an offensive term. But I think that, you know, looking at the younger folks, it's definitely harder to justify spending that much money. Um, 
especially just knowing a lot of people that look at illegal streams and even looking at cable. I know that a lot of us prefer to watch on our mobile devices, but you kind of have to do, you got to do what you got to do basically. So that's kind of my take on that. I mean, I know that they are going to transition over to that, um, but I do think that there is some value in, in TNT and ESPN as well. I agree with Dave. There's definitely some value in the short term to TNT and ESPN. Well, for one, ESPN itself is covered under Disney Plus's streaming service, which to the NBA is of great interest to hit two nails with the same hammer in that way, to sign a deal with ESPN to get both the cable coverage and, well, really, to sign a deal with Disney and to get the Disney Plus streaming service. Um, but here's one thing that none of us have considered is that unlike the NFL, the NBA is a sport that is growing internationally like wildfire. Let's take a look, for example, at the MVP of the NBA, Nikola Jokic. Where is he from? Serbia. Let's take a look at the, the rookie of the year two years ago, Luka Doncic, an emerging superstar. Where is he from? Slovenia. MVP candidate Joel Embiid from Cameroon. This is a sport that's growing internationally. So what the NBA should really do is go for the deal that is going to have get them that greater reach internationally. I mean, for one, we, they, we've even seen talks of the NBA trying to expand into Mexico City and put a team there. So on that note, the NBA has to look at streaming internationally also. You know, reaching the services that maybe perhaps in Europe they don't watch as much Disney Plus as we do here. They prefer Peacock, I mean, or any other service. I really don't know what services they prefer, but I'm sure there's other catered European services. And the NBA has to look into that because there is so much more potential to grow outside of the United States than within. I mean, so much so that half, I would, that about half of the new young rising stars in the NBA are not from American soil. So that is one major reason why the NBA should look into streaming. While at the same time, it is of the NBA's best interest to work with amazing lobbyists that are going to help provide safeguards against illegal streaming, because that is public enemy number one to the NBA, to the NFL, and to any other entity that relies on streaming to get viewership. Illegal streaming is public enemy number one. And all these sports uh, companies, all these leagues, should have a coalition to get the best lobbyists around the world, in the United States, in the European Union, in Korea, wherever, in order to combat illegal streaming. Thing that they have to consider. But for right now, as a safeguard, yes, the NBA should definitely still pursue cable deals on American soil, just because those safeguards have not been are not there yet. We simply don't have the technology. We don't have any type of way of preventing illegal streaming from happening, really. It's very, I mean, for you to get caught illegally streaming these days, you would have to be make a very big mistake while doing illegal streaming. Because right now it is any, I think a five-year-old can get someone's phone or get on a computer and illegally stream the an NBA game that's going on right now. So if, if that's the case, and that is a problem. And like I said, it's a, it is of the NBA's best interest to do that because until then, that is a hindrance to their expansion 
outside of the of the United States. Yeah, I, I definitely think it was you. You literally took the, the my mouth about international basketball because I was thinking that uh, right before you started speaking, and and it was it's so fun to see you flesh out this idea. I was actually thinking more of it in the context of China, especially how much growth they they've seen as well. But you are one hundred percent correct about you know all your points you made about especially about rising stars and about how a lot of them are from Europe as well. I think Europe and China both are two huge like markets for basketball and i completely agree with your point that that's why i think they should expand streaming in the long term to help like flesh out those markets and make it like to expand it to what it fully can be however i do think in the in the short term that those streaming or that the cable services like tnt and espn are the the safer bet um, and as for your point on illegal streaming i i think that is definitely something that they need to they need to try and combat, but I really don't even know how they would do it. I, I, I can't even imagine where they would begin with that. And it seems like such a large bow to conquer in their, you know, in their journey to make streaming available to people who want to watch the NBA, the NFL, the MLB, whatever and whatever it may be. So I, I do think that that is a good point that that needs to be confronted, but I'm just not even sure that these sports leagues together could have the resources for that because I think people are just always going to find a way. Um, but yeah, I think the it's like like I, I said before, streaming in the long term is probably going to end up being the future. But I think TNT and ESPN, the deal they're talking right now is probably a safe bet for the foreseeable future. So just one last thing, at least pointed towards you, Gabriel, if you can answer this. So at least for ESPN and TNT, those are mainly going to be in the U.S. But for international streaming, yeah, there is an issue with finding content providers that can provide this content to other countries. So do you think it would actually be financially viable for the NBA, since they own their own content, to create their own service and then provide the content themselves so that they can receive the money directly? Well, it really depends because we have to consider that the, some of the markets that the NBA is trying to permeate, their citizens of those countries do not have the same disposable income in order to pay uh, $10 a month or $120 a year into an NBA streaming service. Like maybe in Europe, they can. Um, you know, especially Western Europe, you know, Germany, um, France, the UK. But the NBA is really trying, the NBA is really permeating right now the southern, southeastern Europe, which we know is a poor region of Europe. Um, so that's an end. So that's an interesting uh, dilemma there. And also China. I mean, fact of the matter is, you know, while China does have a lot of people with money, most of the people there <laughs> do not even make one sixth of what the average American makes in a year. And so if the NBA is going to do a streaming service, the biggest issue is going to be the pricing, right? Um, because on one hand, you know, the NBA could cater the prices to the certain countries, um, you know, depending on where they're trying to cater their service to. But on the other hand, people get around this too. I mean, I know people who in, in, in Colombia who, who VPN, who VPN um, Netflix, in order to see American shows, and believe it or not, they get a better deal here in the United States than they do in Colombia. Um, just because of certain different laws uh, regarding streaming and content that make it more difficult for you to 
put your content out there. I mean, that's another big thing to tackle is that both the EU and the People's Republic of China have more stringent laws regarding on the disseminating of your content to the public than does the United States of America. Hence, more stringent laws mean higher expenses and getting started, getting your own streaming service startup in those countries, declaring as a corporation, paying taxes, paying taxes on it in those different countries, especially those EU taxes, which we know <laughs> it probably would uh, would put a lot of people in shock when they when they see how much some corporations in the European Union pay for taxes. I mean, those are just things that the NBA has to consider before they they do that, and it it may or it may not be a financially viable option. But that is something that I cannot give you a definitive answer. But I can say that there's definitely a lot more hurdles than we would think, just because of the nature of how business works in these different countries. It could be to the NBA's best interest, honestly, to just go with whatever streaming services are offered to their people there and let those services deal with the laws and regulations of their respective countries. Um, but like I said, this is a very difficult thing. Um, I'm sure that Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA and the NBA front office is going to tackle that issue if it arises. And um, only time will tell to see what happens with with the future of the NBA possibly making its own streaming service and whether or not it would be widely available internationally. Well, thank you, Gabriel. And thank you everyone for your wonderful inputs on these two topics. And I wanna thank you, the listener, for taking time out of your busy day to give us a listen about our discussions on these two important topics. And so I wanna thank everyone for being here today. And um, I just wanna wish you all a good night and a good day and a good week. And I hope you all enjoy your summer. And please be sure to subscribe to our um, Vanable Business Review podcast on your favorite podcast apps, such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and others. And if you have any feedback, comments, or any compliments about our podcast, please feel free to email us at vanablebusinessreview at gmail.com. Thank you and good night.